Good morning, church family. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Today we're going to be looking at just two verses, verses 7 and 8. It's just a reminder, over the last two weeks, uh, we looked at first six verses of Revelation, which uh, first we looked at kind of the, the who and the, the what and the why of Revelation, and then we talked about who Jesus is and what he did for us. Uh, John, John began this particular epistle with that prologue slash introduction, but today's verses lead into the main body of the text by foreshadowing what might be called the climax of his vision, which is the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So while the kids are finding the bingo pictures, let's talk about what we're going to discover today. Um, I'd be willing to bet that most of us would say that we are looking forward to the return of Christ. Is that accurate? Okay. And I think that most of us really do feel that way. We don't just say that we feel that way. But my question for all of you this morning is, are you ready? Are you ready? Not are you looking forward to it, but are you ready? Now, this might seem like a minor difference, but I think that it's more than just semantics here. There, there's, a, there's, a similar, um, there's a similar difference between a lot of, of very close things. Being ready is not precisely the same as looking forward to something and vice versa. And there's a lot of different directions that we could go with this, but today, for today, I'm going to ask just one, okay? One, one question for you guys before we move on. If Jesus returned before we close out the service this morning, is there anything that you would regret? Why don't you think about that just for a minute? If you, if you knew the date and the time that he was returning, what would you do differently? Why don't we open with prayer, God? I I thank you for this group. I thank you, Father, for the amazing blessing of being able to preach your word to your people. I pray that it is through the power of your spirit, and I ask, Father, that this morning everybody that's here will receive exactly what they're intended to receive. I pray that you open our eyes to your truth, that you reveal something to us that perhaps we had not expected. Lord, this is the book of Revelation, and there's so much in here that uh, is, some of it's incomprehensible to us, and some of it is very, very clear. And uh, Lord, I've, I've committed to trying to be as clear as can be with, with the very clear stuff. So today I pray, God, that as we listen and as we soak in your word, that will take it with us in this week, and it'll encourage us and fill us with a desire to live more passionately for you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the Apostle John, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, writes, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. 
Everett, got to ask. Did you add that part in that song? I liked it. Never heard it before. It, uh, you can tell that Everett's paying attention to what scripture the sermon's going to be out of when you hear a song like that. So, it's just two verses, but it's so full. And I want to start off with a statement. He says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Now, who's John talking about here? Jesus, of course. Okay, so, so anyone who's been paying attention, we've been reading any of the four Gospels, okay, then you're going to know that Jesus is coming back. All right, that's, that's not a question. He is coming back. Okay? He has stated that both explicitly and implicitly. It's in, it's in Mark 13, it's in John 14, it's in Luke 17. Jesus is referring to this fact, but perhaps the most famous text in all of the Gospels where Christ refers to His second coming is in Matthew 24. And that's where we read this. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, in this case, Jesus was speaking to his disciples. And it was also to the current servants of God that John wrote this epistle. Okay, this very similar passage that we're looking at today. But only two chapters later, in Matthew's gospel, Christ is standing in front of the high priest, the Sanhedrin. And when he's he's being mercilessly interrogated, by these leaders, these religious elite. And when directly asked if he was the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus responded by saying this. He says, But I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I think that's interesting. Jesus starts out by saying, you have said so, which is kind of an idiom. Like we go, well, that that doesn't make sense. You have said, it's like when we say, well, you better believe it. Okay. That means something to us. We understand what that means. When you say you have said so, that's that's saying, yes, correct. You're right. So there it is again, friends. Behold, he's coming on the clouds. Why is that? Why clouds? You know, clouds are some of the most just grandiose things in nature. We don't always think about it because they're, they're ubiquitous. Every time you go outside, just about, you see clouds in the sky, right? Uh, unless you live, you know, where the buffalo roam and the skies are not cloudy all day. But um, they're, they're absolutely enormous, these clouds. What's that? They're most of the, yeah, most of the time they're white unless there's a storm brewing. Um, but they, we, we don't even realize how big they are. You know, some storm cloud, like the tops of them have been measured at 14 miles. That's more than twice as high as Mount Everest. Clouds can be ginormous. And yet, despite their immense size and weight, okay, their weight is insane. You actually look at what a storm cloud weighs. And yet, they float. They float in the sky. And clouds can either bring life, you know, the, the, like saving rains, or they can bring immense destructive power, sometimes both, in the same storm. And God's connection with the, the clouds shows up multiple times in the Old Testament. It's a sign of His divinity, uh, sovereignty, His provision, His power. We see it in the Torah. We see it in the Psalms. We see it in the prophets, particularly Daniel 7, 
when Daniel says he sees one as the Son of Man coming to the Lord on the clouds. But there's also a direct reference to this from the very mouths of angels. You remember in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus ascends to heaven right in front of the apostles? Luke writes, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took them, uh, took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, whatever you may think about the book of Revelation, and as, you know, as far as what portions of it were intended to be literal versus figurative, I'm very confident in saying that Jesus is literally going to come back riding on the clouds, just like we sang this morning. And it's not going to be like last time. You know, last time he, he comes as an infant in an obscure stable in a desert town. You know, John says, and every eye will see him. Now, what does that say to you? What does that tell us? I think it's safe for us to say that, that, that Jesus' return is going to be a universal experience. Now, believe it or not, there are some cults today who claim that Jesus has already returned, but that it's a, a secret and that he's only revealed himself to a, a few specific people. This, By the way, this is called preterism, and in Christian orthodoxy, we call this heresy, Okay. Based on Scripture, the idea that Jesus would come back and that many people would be unaware of it is actually pretty dumb. It goes right against what Scripture... Christ Himself said, everyone's going to know. You look again in Matthew 24. Jesus says, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe it. He said, for as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. This is a very important text, y'all. And I, I honestly, I think if people did a better job of paying attention to what he says here, we would be less likely to be duped by false teachers. You know, there, there, some of us were alive in the, the early 90s. You may remember the, the, the 1990s. Um, you, you may remember the, uh, the Branch Davidian cult and the standoff at the compound in Waco, Texas. Um, this was a group that had fallen under the spell of an evil, delusional man Whose, whose name was formerly Vernon Howell. He changed it to David Koresh. He believed, or at least he said he believed, that he was the second coming of Christ. And this wick, wick, this sick, wicked, there you go, sick, wicked person, he collected a following, a group of people around himself. And, and these folks bought into his deception. It's actually, it, you, can, you can listen to some of the recordings that these people sent to their loved ones, and they sound sane. And they believe that what they're doing makes sense. And it's amazing. And more than 80 people lost their lives because of this deception. And if these folks had read the very words of Christ himself, they would have known better. So what's really interesting is that this, this type of, of false teaching, this obviously wasn't new to the 20th century because Jesus spoke of it to his contemporary followers, you know, the, the listeners right then. And we read of a similar problem in 1 Thessalonians. Paul says, there would be some that are teaching that the resurrection has already happened. It was confusing people. He said it's destroying the faith of some. So, so to reiterate, folks, okay, when Jesus comes back, you're not going to miss it. 
Okay, he's going to be bigger than, than, than COVID and Taylor Swift and the Milky Way all put together. He's bigger than all that. Okay, you will not miss him. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Did I go out of order? I may have. I may have missed that whole one altogether. Sorry, Norma. <laughs> okay, well, even those who pierced him. Just imagine that that's up there highlighted in the middle of the paragraph. Um, this is an interesting turn of the phrase when he says, even those who pierced him. What does John mean when he says, even those who pierced him? Okay, I, I think the most obvious reference is to what? Crucifixion, yes. I mean, when, when uh, the nails went into his his wrists and into his, his feet, and when the, the, the spear was rammed up into his side. But, but at most, that's only a handful of people, right? Those who literally pierced him. Do you think that perhaps John is casting a wider net than that? We're going to come back to that question shortly, but before we do, let's, let's interpret John's words in a more literal sense. Okay, since we know that Jesus has not yet returned, there's, there's been a lot of time that has passed since he made this promise. So is there anyone other than Jesus who is physically alive today that was also alive back in 90 A.D.? Besides Craig. Just kidding. Just kidding. Just kidding. Of course not. Okay? So John doesn't seem to be referring only to those who were currently living when he wrote these words. Okay? But also people who have physically died. And we shouldn't be too weirded out by this because, after all, like Jesus said, God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is their God, not he was their God, right? Even those who are dead to us will see him when he comes. This fits right in with Paul's writings and maybe most particularly the the Carmen Christi in Philippians chapter 2. If you don't know what I'm referring to, it'll probably sound familiar. Uh, That's where... Paul, he, he instructs every believer to have an attitude like that of Christ Jesus, right? He, he says, Jesus did not consider equality with God a thing to be clung to, right? He says, but instead he, he poured himself out, being, being born in the likeness of man, taking on the very nature of a servant. And, and it says uh, that he was, in fact, he was humbled to the point even of death. You remember that, right? Being, it says, on the cross, and then after that, what did God do? It says, therefore God has highly exalted him. And bestowed upon him the name that is above every other name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every tongue confess in heaven and on earth and what? Under the earth. That Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no question that Jesus' return is going to be obvious and visible and inescapable. And every eye shall see him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. This is another fairly strange statement. You know, why would tribes wail? You know, the, the Greek word that's translated wail, it literally means to beat the breast, to, to smite yourself on the chest in grief. I would do it harder, but I don't want to, the microphone. <laughs> deafen everybody. It, 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 it means to do it in mourning. And so it's apparent that the return of Christ will bring great sorrow to some. Now, why is that, you suppose? You know, I think there may be more than one potential reason for this. And, and perhaps 
more than one interpretation depending on how we think of the word tribe. Okay, some people believe the word tribe is a reference only to the, the 12 tribes of Israel, and others believe that John means every people group on earth. And I, I'm inclined to the latter perspective, but I could be mistaken. It may even be both. You know? So consider this. Earlier, John mentioned that every eye would see him, even those who pierced him. And it seems like he's, he's probably referencing a passage from Zechariah 12 that was written more than 500 years before Jesus was born. And the context of this passage... Uh, it, it's a prophecy about the restoration of the people of Judah, whom God was reminding the faithful among his people. He was reminding them that he had not abandoned them and that he was eventually going to restore them to, uh, to their position of prominence. And this is what he said. He said, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So interesting. So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. By the way, I, I realize it might be a little small font for some of you guys. It's also written in your bulletin insert. All these scriptures are in there as well. Uh, I think this right here is an amazing passage. It's filled with forgiveness and it's filled with kindness. You know, you don't, you don't always equate the Old Testament with those things and yet they're there. God is the same God in both the Old and New Testaments. And in this immediate context of the prophecy, God, God seems to be saying He's going to bless His people with what 2 Corinthians 7 refers to as godly sorrow. You familiar with that? It talks about the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow is a sorrow leading to repentance for the sins that they've committed against Him. However, in the, the future fulfillment of this passage, once Christ has returned, I think most scriptures indicate that the chance to repent will have come and gone. And we're going to get into that later as we get into Revelation further. But, so these tribes that are wailing at this point are most likely doing so out of a deep regret for siding against the gospel and perhaps remorse that they'd rejected God's goodness. It was offered so freely to them. And they basically spat in his face. Even those who've never heard the truth about Christ are going to be faced with how they responded to their God-given consciences and the fact that they did things that they knew to be wrong. And so when, when, every, when every justification, every, every selfish, self-justifying excuse, when that's all been stripped away, we are left with the ugliness of our sin and if we're not in Christ, with the consequences of our sin. And this, this is cause for great sorrow, for mourning. However, it will not be that way for everyone. And after making this sad statement, John writes, even so, amen. You read that and you say, well, what does that mean? It's kind of like he's saying, Cool. John, John's, it's like he's saying, you know what, I'm totally down with this. Why? Because while it will bring great sorrow to some, it will bring great joy to others. As Paul said in 2 Timothy 4, Jesus is going to provide a crown of righteousness, this is in quotes, to all who love his appearing. Are you looking forward to it? 
to all who love his appearing. A crown of righteousness is promised. Jesus tells parable after parable about how, how the evil and the righteous are going to be separated from one another. You know, there, there's the, the good fish and the bad fish, and there's the wheat and the tares. You know, there, there's the sheep and the goats. And, and while it is truly heartbreaking that some are going to be subject to the fire of hell, there are others who are going to experience the fulfillment of their faith in Jesus. And it's going to be amazing. Those who belong to Christ will enter into eternal bliss with their Lord. This, this is a familiar concept to Christians, but did you know it's not fully unique to the New Testament? You know, the last, the last chapter of the book of Malachi, it's interesting, the, the last word in Malachi is the word curse. But in this last chapter, the word of God spoken through Malachi the prophet, it contains these words near the end. He says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. In other words, those who reject the Lord will be destroyed. But for you who fear my name, he says, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I love that imagery. I have some, I guess, second cousins out of Missouri that owned a dairy farm. They still do. And so they have gotten to observe the sheer joy of baby calves, you know, cavorting about, right? You know, dancing and running through the field when they get set free. And that, that's a beautiful picture, but most of us don't own cows, and so we probably can't exactly identify with it. So, but I bet most of us have owned a puppy, right? Okay, you know how when you, when you get home, you're, you've been gone all day, and when you get home, your puppy, they, they go absolutely nuts, you know, zing, 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 zing all over the house. They just, they, they go crazy. And they're so excited. They have been waiting the whole time for their master to come back. There's some joy in that. I think we ought to feel the same way when our master comes back. Verse 8, I am the alpha and the omega, says the Lord God. What, what's an alpha? What? It's, a, it's, it's, the big, it's the first letter of the Greek alphabet. In fact, our, our word alphabet comes from alpha and beta, right? The first two letters of the Greek alphabet. Um, what is an omega? It's, a, it's that Greek letter that looks like an upside-down horseshoe, right? You know what I'm talking about? It, it's, it's the last letter of the Greek alphabet. So for the Lord to say he's the alpha and the omega, that's like saying, I go from A to Z, which is symbolic of what? Eternity. Thank you. It shows us that he is, first of all, he's the beginning of all things. He is before all things. Now, to be, to be perfectly frank, there is not full agreement among scholars as to whether when it says the Lord here is referring to God the Father or Jesus Christ. And in the context, it could be either one, since both the Father and the Son are God. But from the standpoint of eternity, okay, the description applies to both of them. God, God refers to himself three times just in the book of Isaiah, you know, at least three times. He talks about how I am the first and the last, okay? But just a few verses later, 
in our current section where we're reading. A, a vision appears to John, and it seems like that's Jesus, and uses essentially the same language. So here, I'm, I'm inclined to think that we can assume that Christ is the one speaking. Okay, I could be wrong. But anyway, Scripture certainly backs up this assertion that Christ is before all things. After all, John wrote the famous opening to his gospel that, you know, we we saw earlier this morning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made through him, it says. And without him was not anything made which has been made. He was in the beginning with God, right? And if we take this at face value, which I, I think we should then that indicates that everything in the universe, and that means both physical and spiritual things, were made through Jesus. Meaning, He is not a created being. He is not a thing. Okay? Now, that Jesus was was created rather than creator is another heresy. It was, uh, you may have heard about Santa Claus slapping the the other guy for the heretic. Um, That story is actually an urban legend. But, and by Santa Claus, I mean St. Nick. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Um, St. Nick, St. Nicholas, allegedly slapped uh, Arius for this, this comment. We don't actually have that for sure in history. It showed up around 1400. But anyway, um, that's, that's another heresy. It's called Arianism. Jesus is not a created thing, okay? He's not. He is creator, so there's still some cults today. Mormonism is one. Jehovah's Witnesses are another that teach this heresy. That is certainly not the biblical position, okay? Sometimes they try to use Colossians 1.15 because it refers to Jesus as image of the invisible God. Then this word, the firstborn of all creation. So they go, see, it's firstborn. Well, they take the word firstborn to mean that he was created, but the Greek word doesn't always mean that. And if you go to the surrounding context, the very next sentence here, he says, for by him all things were created, okay? All things. So, so he is by definition not a thing, okay? By, by him all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. I want you to pause just a second. Think about the ramifications of that. All things were created through him and for him. God is a firm believer in the primacy of Christ. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. That last line is pretty amazing when you consider that it's saying that Christ is not only the creator, but also the sustainer of everything he's created. And when we think about the amazing complexity of our universe, of atoms, and the molecular structures of different types of matter, and how elements are always in motion, and yet they have tremendous amounts of space in between all of their parts, but we perceive things as as solid, as dense, because they're held together by this invisible force You know, that brings the amazing truth very sharply into focus. Christ is the sustainer. That anything exists is miraculous. I believe this is not only the case for physical things, but also spiritual things. I think if Christ let go of us for even a moment, we would fall away from him. Thank God that he not only brought us, each of us, into a relationship to the Father, but he also sustains it. So he is 
before all that is, and he is also the end of all that is. One of the more popular teachings in Christianity recently is, has been that God's kingdom is coming to earth in such a way that he continues uh, to utopianize our planet through the church. Um, and, and listen, I think there's a sense in which, yeah, we're called to do that. We're supposed to be praying that his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven, but, but that is not his end game, okay? Christ will be the end of all things because all things, including our bodies, will perish eventually and be replaced with new things. You know, we're going to get into that more toward the end of Revelation, but, but in the meantime, this idea is held up by a passage in uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. Uh, it's only four verses, so just bear with me. Um, but in the day of the Lord, and in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, that was a euphemism for the day of judgment. In the New Testament, it's been consistently applied to the final judgment, okay? And the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That sounds pretty scary, doesn't it? Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? I want you to pause there too. What sort of people indeed? If we are truly convinced that nothing in this world is going to last, then how should we react to circumstances that we know are temporary? How should we relate to possessions that we know are only temporal and cannot follow us into eternity? How should we respond to people who are made in the image of God and destined for either bliss or punishment that will last forever? What sort of people ought you to be in the lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, that's the key, okay? Because what we see now, right, all around us, this is going to be made new. As pretty as a lot of this is, it's going to be completely redone and we will have a fresh capacity to, to enjoy all of creation, thanks to our Lord, right? And He's the Alpha and the Omega, who was and who is to come, excuse me, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This, uh, this last partial sentence reveals two wonderful aspects of God's character, which can be, I think, combined into one description and that is that Jesus Christ is eternally sovereign. Okay, after, after rising from the dead, Jesus told his disciples in, in Matthew 28, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And even now, he's only waiting for his enemies to be made his footstool. The Father has placed all things in control, uh, under the control, rather, of Christ. Christ is never going to be more or less powerful than he is today, okay? Although we, we will not experience the full manifestation of this until his glorious return. But we know, we know he's coming back. And we know that when he does, he is going to take out the trash. There's, there's a bumper sticker. I remember seeing this a long time ago. 
Um, there's, there's a bumper sticker I've seen lately a lot more. It says, Jesus is coming back. Look busy. You might have seen that one. Um, I've seen this one. Uh, I, I'm cleaning it up just a little bit, but it says basically, Jesus is coming back, and boy, is he mad. You know, I'm pretty sure the creator of this bumper sticker wrote it tongue-in-cheek, but I think there is definitely some truth to it. Jesus, though, he's not going to come back as a result of having lost his temper. But he will come back and rain down his righteous anger, his, his indignant wrath against all sinners who have refused his sweet mercy and forgiveness, who have rejected his offer. And so today, if you have not yet experienced the forgiveness of your sins by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do it. Do it now. He, you don't know when he's coming back. He could come back before I finish this sentence. We, we don't know. And even if he doesn't come back for another thousand years, I don't know how much time you have. So just be challenged, friend. Place your trust in Christ. Repent of your sins. Be immersed as the Bible commands. Walk in obedience alongside other believers as, as we, we try to live out our faith in a way that God has called us to. And listen, you, you have a lot of opportunities today before you. There's a lot of different options. He is coming back. So whose side are you going to be on? I hope you've already made that decision, but if you haven't, you need to today. If you're already on his side, then, then great, don't be afraid. Because when he comes back, he's going to set everything right in this world gone wrong. So so you can look forward to it, not with weeping, but with joy. Even so. Amen.